0: Coming to you from Mission Hills Christian Church in Los Angeles, California, it's Ask Science Mike Live!
1: So, in your book, Finding God in the Waves, um, you describe that there's this inconsistency in the creation account between... um, Uh the way the author describes the order of creation mm-hmm. and the way science seems to su- suggest that it was created. Mm-hmm. Um, which, yeah, I buy. That's fine. What do you think the author of Genesis was trying to prioritize? Like, why do you think there was an order that he, this guy listed out? What do you think he wanted us to get from that order?
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Like, I had predicted where that one would go, and then uh, it didn't. By the way... Um, I'll pay you five bucks after for mentioning the book in the question. I really appreciate that.
1: Fantastic.
0: Um, so Genesis, uh, it depends on what exegesis you take from the text and what hermeneutic you read use to read the text. That's me just trying to sound like I know more than I do. I'm basically saying how you read the text and with what assumptions. Um, and where what I've read is the primary... A Point in Genesis is to denote God's character and relationship to creation That's the primary impetus of those documents. So The Genesis tells a, a creation account. That's pretty similar to contemporary creation accounts from other ancient cultures in that region of the world, but those creation accounts typically involved violence So a battle of the gods or a murder of a goddess or something like that led to creation. And the Genesis God does two things. One, creates with word. And two, keeps saying that it's good, that this God is pleased with creation, which are our departures from other contemporary creation accounts. Um, So they're certainly talking about a God that creates with intent and with word instead of violence and who has a benevolent relationship with creation, as opposed to an indifferent or oppositional or domineering approach to creation. Those are big ideas theologically. Uh, But it's also true that the Genesis does intend to relay cosmological information. The creation accounts are placed within a contemporary understanding of the structure of the world. And it, at that far back in history, we would imagine most people understood the earth to be relatively uh, round, but not spherical, but not flat. The earth rested on pillars, literal like pil- pillars, um, like great stones supporting it. And underneath the earth was Sheol, the, the realm of the, the dead. And then over the earth was this great vault of heaven, which the Tower of Babylon was trying to reach. It's this big uh, you know, dome that rotated around the earth. And it had holes in it. And through those holes, at night, the glory of God of heaven shone through in the form of the stars. And when it rained, that was uh, the floodgates of heaven being opened and those holes in the firmament allowing rain to follow, follow the earth. So the primary purpose of Genesis was about God's character and relationship to creation. The secondary point was the cosmology. Now the cosmology is wrong. There is a flat earth movement on Twitter right now. Um, <laughs> but their, their papers aren't doing very well in peer review or reproduction. And uh, we're, we're very, very confident the earth is a roughly spherical mass that the sun is the center of our solar system, but not the center of our galaxy. Oddly enough, the sun is the center of our universe, just like the Earth and Mars and everything else because the universe is spatially infinite. So it either has no center or everything is the center. Um, So if if you feel like you're the center of the universe, you are. (laughs) So you really are special as long as you acknowledge so is everyone else. So why do we value a book that gets its cosmology so wrong, and I think that's where we get into what hermeneutic you use with the text. Using Genesis to derive scientific insights is a bad call. It's a bad idea because Genesis was written before science existed as a discipline. Well, if we make some assumptions that that God is personal and a being and communicates with mankind. If God tried to offer scientific insights to the authors of Genesis, what would they have done with it? What, what, in, a, in a culture that didn't have the mathematical framework to understand this information, how would they have communicated or understood it? Remember, Isaac Newton had to invent calculus in order to describe the motion of our planets. So before Newton existed, (laughs) describing the nature of celestial mechanics was impossible. So I think the most important thing to understand about our relationship to the Bible is when divorced from its cultural context, without understanding as much as we can about who the author was, the audience the author was communicating to, and what agenda that author carried, you do a disservice to the Bible reading it without filling in those pieces of information. You force a beautiful piece, not piece, a beautiful library of ancient literature about God into the assumptions of modernism. One of the most frustrating things to me in my life at this point is the similarity between how most American Christians read the Bible and how most atheists do. And in both cases, those groups ignore the methodologies and insights that historians pick up all the time because they're reading the text with the wrong assumptions. We don't read Plato and say, wait, there aren't any celestial spheres because we place Plato within a historical chronological perspective. And I think it's essential that we do the same for the Bible in order to learn the most about God from its pages.
1: Yeah, uh, continuing from that commentary on creationism, I've got my Jurassic Park shirt here, so uh, definitely interested in this subject of origins. Um, and creationism is so often dismissed as pseudoscience, which I'm, you know, ready to do so personally. But considering it comes from such a bizarre perspective, you know, in terms of our modern approach to science. Is there anything that creationism has to offer that is interesting to science? Uh, Have they gotten some things right?
0: Man, you guys are bringing it tonight. That's two questions that just at the last second veered into questions I haven't contemplated before. Does creationism have anything to offer modern science? Have they gotten anything right with their assumptions? Okay, so let's start with one thing. Young Earth creationism is a really recent theological development. That's not first century thinking. That's not third century thinking. <laughs> that's, uh, that's popularized in the 19th and 20th century thinking. Old Earth creationism and intelligent design, it wouldn't have been called intelligent design, But religious cosmology has offered science new insights and perspectives. Um, It was a priest who originally envisioned a universe that emerged from a Big Bang. It was a monk who first imagined a spatially infinite universe. Uh, Galileo's work was in part funded by the church. Today, the Vatican has an operational observatory that employs real astrophysicists and does meaningful work. So, historically, religious cosmology has contributed to the sciences. Today, modern cosmology does pretty good on its own, which I think gets to like a fundamental idea about what theology does and what faith does. The only time we find religion and science in conflict is when religious people use their faith or revelation to make claims about how the physical universe is structured. So, My approach is if I have questions about how the physical universe is structured, I just go to science. I just skip straight to science. I just let science be science because it wins. Like, so let's imagine for a moment that we assemble two teams of 50 people and we give them the same mission, land a 12-pound robot on the moon, and on one team we take rocket scientists and engineers and on the other team we place uh, people from church prayer groups with no scientific background and we say we're going to run an experiment you guys do science here's we're going to finish your rover and hand it to you just pray it to the moon okay now imagine that i give you five hundred dollars and you have to bet on team a or team b I bet every person in the room puts their money with Team A. I bet the Pope puts his money with Team A. Right? I mean, I bet, I bet Ken Ham puts his money with Team A. Because at what science does, science wins. Right? The church's record in battling scientists over scientific ideas is its embarrassing. But... Science doesn't tell us what to do with the insights of science. It doesn't make moral judgments. It doesn't speak to beauty. It doesn't help us provide purpose or meaning or direction among all the facts that it reveals. Science can tell you how to split an atom. But science doesn't tell you if it's better to obliterate a city or power one with that technology. And to me, that's the role our faith plays, is it helps us make sense of all these facts, to find meaning, to find purpose, and to find direction. And so, if creationism and religious science has anything to inform science about, it is the ethical development of the sciences, what we research and in what way. I find it interesting that some of the most uh, verdant uh, opposers of animal research do so on religious grounds, right? Because they believe that life is sacred. And in that way, informing how science is done, I think religion has an incredibly vital role to play.
2: Hi, Science Mike. Hi. Um, thank you so much for both of your podcasts. I find them really amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit. You mentioned it in the last question that science doesn't speak to beauty Um, I recently moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting and I feel like especially as a girl a lot of it is based on how you look Mm -hmm. and You compare yourself to other people and how Mm -hmm. beautiful they are and um, I just wanted to ask you about (laughs) basically the science of what is attractive how much of it is a construct and how much of it is evolution saying i need my mate to do x y and z and look like x y and z in order to be successful and um just also like if you can add anything about coming to terms of liking the way that you look cuz i just feel like especially as an actor and especially in los angeles like it's just rough, like you're always getting critiqued on like how you look and you go to an audition and there's like 20 other girls there that look prettier than you, I feel like. Um, maybe some other actors in this room can relate to me. Thank you. Right
0: on. I'm having fun. This is, <laughs> this is a good groove. Um, okay, yeah, uh, uh, really almost upsetting Some of what science reveals about what we find attractive. Uh, Universally, across cultures, body and facial symmetry is highly favored. So it turns out uh, there's two ways to build an organism, a complex organism. Ooh, almost said something that was scientifically inaccurate. There are two ways to build a complex organism that we're aware of using DNA. You can have bilateral symmetry or radial symmetry. Right? So the way humans are structured, we're bilaterally symmetrical, and the two halves of our body are trying to execute the same playbook with only minor variations. To do that successfully, you need good genes, you need to be free of disease during your developmental years, you need excellent nutrition, which should mean you have good survival skills. So evolution did a good job selecting a pressure into us to look for symmetry. And that's all well and good unless you have a less symmetrical face. Um, the other thing we found consistent across cultures is uh, body ratios. So, in every culture, including cultures that have limited or no contact with Western civilization, the same ratio between waist and hips in women. Is favored as ideally beautiful. The ratio. So if the hips are thick, the waist must also get thicker to preserve the ratio and, 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 and the difference. So, um, you know, and we kind of are into relatively or even extremely thin women culturally today, but their hip to waist ratio is not all that different than what you would see in a Renaissance painting. In the ratio men are not free from this tyranny men are uh, assessed by the ratio of shoulders to hips uh, but all cultures are doing are doing the same math there uh, so as I get older I get less and less attractive because I'm like inverting my ratio I'm not a V <laughs> I'm like a, I don't know I'm like a, like a pencil and an apple or something. so um, So that's what we know is like innate. The other stuff is culturalized. sort of. Brighter lips are more attractive. Bigger eyes are more attractive. So what we figured out, especially f- no this not, not just for women uh, most nights, I wear a blazer on stage because it gives me bigger shoulders. It creates this line that doesn't actually exist on my midsection, and it makes me look like I have a more ideal shoulder to waist ratio. It's just I'm just lying with my clothes. Um, but it's funny to me how menswear is designed to universally flatter every possible male body type, just like women's fashion. That bombed. I thought that was a great joke. Like, (laughs) women's fashion is like a microscope of a woman's body designed to accentuate every feature as accurately as possible, like women are being sold on a market. And so, this is created in an arm's waist, particularly in cosmetics, where uh, women's cosmetics is designed to mimic an ongoing state of sexual arousal in a process called super. Normal stimulus and what we're doing now is we're figuring out you now super super normal stimulus really quick Because I've done this on a couple shows in a row and I know people on the internet are getting bored with this answer um, But uh, if you take a, just make a fake turkey head, but it's like a re, it looks like a really attractive female turkey Scientists figured out what that is. I can't tell with my own eyes, but apparently turkeys also have a ratio that's idealized so if you make like a fake wooden turkey head And you put it on a stick, it doesn't have a body. You just put it on a stick, stick it in the ground. And then you have actual female turkeys around this stick. And then you release a male turkey. The male turkey will see the stick and be like, hey. And he will try to mate with the stick, forsaking all of the female turkeys. Now men make sense, right? But, like, as, as much as we want to say stupid turkeys, our brains make the same kind of ridiculous base assessments at a level below our consciousness. And that's why the cosmetics industry is so powerful, because once one woman puts on lipstick, there is now an implicit bias against natural lips. This is why what Alicia Keys is doing is incredibly brave and important. Um, And you multiply that times all the features. So that is also running on evolution. But then we culturalize that to an extreme manner. And for all of its beautiful progressivist values, uh, Los Angeles holds Hollywood. And Hollywood is like maybe the greatest perpetuator of normalizing supernormal stimulus in human appearances. Uh, But we have good fortune in this case that we live in a capitalist economy because in capitalism dollars are votes and so when you see a film maybe an indie film or something that has taken a risk to represent more natural body types and uh, a greater diversity of facial symmetry, symmetry and includes um, actors of differing ability levels, you can reward films like that with your ticket and change the way Hollywood operates. There isn't like, I don't believe, like a Hollywood Illuminati trying to move towards a beauty singularity. There are people who want to make the most money back on what they invested in a picture, and they've learned through conditioned response like the animals we are, that putting symmetrical faces on screen and doing post-production until they look like something that can't exist in physical reality makes money. Now, how do you learn to love your body? Can I just be honest? I love my body, and I mean, look at me. (laughs) I mean, seriously. I'm not just Science Mike, I'm Tour Science Mike. I mostly eat in the Atlanta airport at like 11.30 at night before that last flight to Tallahassee. So the only thing open is Popeyes. So I'm like, hey, how much chicken do you have left? (laughs) Mashed potatoes, let's do this. And so, uh, you know, my waist is probably a solid four and a half, five inches bigger than it was when I started the tour. You know, and uh, I noticed that, like, I've been wearing blazers too much, and I decided tonight I was just going to display my body in its full glory, although it's a black t-shirt, doesn't show shadows, but I look at myself, and I think, I look good. Um, I'm hairy like a gorilla, like just a silver back, and I mean literally, I have back hair. My hair is thinning just incredibly. To the point that on stages like this, if I look down, it looks like I have a full-on bald spot here because the hair is so thin and my follicles shine through. And um, those are all things I've gone through tremendous shame about because I was a chubby kid and the other kids used to call me water tank because when they would push me and I would run to catch them, they said there were waves in my belly. And uh, I remember in seventh grade, I will never forget this. A boy came in and he said, damn boy, you got bigger titties than the girls. And that left a scar on my psyche. Oh man, I could think about that when I was an executive vice president of an ad agency on a random Tuesday and start crying. Those kind of, those kind of wounds, they last. The way people judge us based on our bodies at some point I realized I only get this one body and that it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it I ran a marathon in this body 26.2 miles It took seven hours my feet bled but I ran a marathon I held two little girls close I made him feel safe with these unmuscular broomstick arms of mine. This face, however it looks, I can lean in when I get home and smell my wife's hair and tell her I love her. This body does so many amazing things. So I've changed my perspective. This is not a billboard that advertises who I am. This is who I am so I can either learn to celebrate the gift that is my body the truly singular gift and all the good and bad that comes with it or I can let culture dictate that I should feel depressed because my waist should be smaller or my legs longer and I admit this is a little bit of bullshit because I'm a guy and media throws at me all the time that if you're funny and successful, you can be a fat guy with a smoking life. And then we'll use that word, smoking, smoking hot, right? You ever hear of a smoking hot man? Do you ever hear that? <laughs> Have you ever seen a piece on a male business executive or political leader that begins by describing his outfit and his figure? Have you ever seen it? The media we support matters, and every time I read media that begins discussing a woman of accomplishment, or any woman who's not a fashion model, in a piece about fashion, I write a letter to the editor, every time. Because right now it's a war in the West to love your body. But maybe we can work together in the economic decisions we make and the pressure we put on editorial staff to help liberate each other.
3: I noticed in your, in your book how respectfully you treated um, Richard Dawkins mm-hmm. as you discussed the selfish gene and the God delusion. And my question is... Um, Uh, Two parts. What did you draw from that book, either one of them, Mm -hmm. that blessed or benefited your life? Oh, wow, yeah. And secondly, um, do you see a way that science and or the atheist perspective can also provide some of the things that religion has traditionally Offered such as comfort, appreciation of the unknown, the sense of mystery, all of that that we normally accord the religious pursuit. Uh, those two things: first, a very personal one. How have you been blessed? And the role of science in building or responding to hmm. those re- deep religious concerns.
0: Oh wow! Thank you. Well, I mean, we question four. I think those are like the four best questions of the whole tour. Thank you. The selfish gene, which I read in high school, helped me understand the true beauty of a theory of common origin. The way that our genes equip us not to be the strongest or the fastest or the most brutal, but simply the most adapted to a given situation that the reason genes create diversity even in a single species is to deal with different selective pressures that happen at different moments. Like some of us are naturally kind of chubby and some of us are naturally kind of thin. And in times of caloric plenty, all the skinny people are really good at hunting. They live longer lives. They tend to have more children. In times of famine, they tend to die first. And so suddenly the overeaters make evolutionary sense. And that way that our genes, in brutally trying to make sure they get replicated, allow the miracle of life to face challenging conditions, to recover from multiple extinction events. Um, At the time, as a Southern Baptist, I felt like I was seeing the eyes of God. The God Delusion, a book which I... Try to read at least once per year, made me understand for the first time that atheists weren't just like unreasonable, angry people. That they had really legitimate critiques of the way people who worship God treat others. And that was a key insight that I'm careful. I try to continue on some level to identify as an atheist to trick my brain <laughs> into remaining sympathetic with secular philosophies Now in terms of can atheism offer the world what religion offers? no, but that's because atheism isn't a belief system Atheism is a lack of belief in any god or gods. It's not an operating moral philosophy When atheists gather I love what Neil deGrasse Tyson says it's like getting people together who don't like golf If you can imagine a room full of people who don't like golf, what do they have in common? We don't play golf. There's no point of affinity or rallying or identity or purpose other than we don't believe in God. So what happens in many cases, atheism becomes a movement by turning into something called anti-theism. We all don't like God. Believing God is bad. Let's convince other people not to believe in God, and suddenly you have evangelical fundamentalist atheism. Of who, of which, like Richard Dawkins, is Billy Graham, right? Um, and I, I, that is not a judgment in the negative on Richard Dawkins. What I found when I first became an atheist was my immediate moral philosophy became nihilism. <laughs> I got lost fast because I placed all moral value judgments, all sense of purpose and meaning and beauty in the sense of my understanding of God. And suddenly I didn't have that. So I was like, "Why don't I just never go to work again and eat pizza until I die?" That's a real thought I had, and my wife was out of town, so I actually called in sick and ordered a pizza as soon as Pizza Hut opened. I should have put that in the book. Um, and next week, and so uh, it wasn't until I kind of grieved the loss of God. That I started talking to atheists online I was like hey okay I get it there is no God but why do I feel like kind of depressed and suicidal and a lot of atheists are like what you're depressed and suicidal grow up but some people got it because for them there was a grief and a loss too I remember one guy told me he said atheism is not the answer Let me tell you about humanism, and humanism is a moral philosophy. Humanism says that since there is no God, there is no Savior, it's up to humans to create human flourishing. It's up to humans to be the Savior of mankind, not God. An intrinsic assumption of humanism is that human life has value. That's a beautiful notion. And this person told me, he said, so you used to care for the poor because Jesus told you to. And now you feel bad because you don't feel like you need to care for the poor. What if you just care for the poor because you want to? Like it blew my mind. Like it's so obvious. But to this Southern Baptist guy, spent my whole life in that that realm, it blew my mind. And I started to find among humanists an incredible sense of purpose, solidarity, and comfort right here. In Los Angeles, Uh, there's something called the Sunday Assembly. Have you heard of this? This is atheists who get together on Sunday mornings to sing songs together, usually journey, uh, (laughs) to pass offering plates collecting money for worthwhile charities before a speaker with something very interesting and uplifting to say comes forward and shares a message for 25 minutes. And then they end with a song. It's a rather familiar liturgy, right? Uh, and these things are quite popular. So they're getting this sense of community that religion has traditionally provided. So I think that it's possible to have secularist organizations. Uh, Sam Harris is a very notable uh, public atheist. And his most recent book, Waking Up, was about the value of spiritual experiences divorced from religion or belief in God. So he's advocating the same kind of rituals I talk about in my book around prayer and meditation, but he's just doing it for brain health. In terms of things religion alone can offer, I haven't seen a secular answer to pastoral care. Um, I understand that sometimes pastors, especially men, uh, really muck up that office. They turn it into a power struggle, into a mine is bigger than yours uh, thing. They just, I'm the the dominant ape in this troop. Um, And some pastors are even more than domineering and authoritarian. They're outright abusive physically, mentally, or sexually. And so I don't want to say for a moment I'm ignoring or excusing those things. But pastors who do so from a place of love and health are a singular force of social cohesion and comfort? What other organization pays someone to wait for your call? What other organization will have someone who has a special parking space because they come to the hospital so often? Um, And so the church, even Sunday assemblies, uh, we'll see where it goes. But if, if you're a Christian and you move to a new town and you find a Christian church that is healthy for you, you basically have instant community, and uh, we're a social species that's powerful. So this ready-made community plus pastoral care is so genuinely innovative and powerful, (laughs) I think Christianity has forgot that it's maybe its most powerful tool. That if we reclaim churches as points of gathering comfort and community, instead of base camps to wage a culture war, maybe there isn't an answer to the church and secularism. And maybe the reason today it seems like there is is because we've spent 80 to 100 years doing it so badly.
4: Hi, this is my uh, first time knowing about you, and um, I've enjoyed it so far. Um, Well,
0: let me know if that changes.
4: Yeah, I know, I know. It'll end. But... So for me, spirit is energy, energy is spirit. I I never really saw the difference, though Mm -hmm. I know that science and religion cleave, you know, those two words. Spirit goes to one side, energy goes to the other side. Um, What I'm seeing in science right now scares me. Okay. Monsanto, um, the oil spills, our, our need for destroying everything on earth, scares me the fracking the shit out of Oklahoma until the, they have 250 earthquakes every year when do we stop bad science when do we stop outfits like Monsanto from poisoning and hoarding seeds i mean and why the science and this irritates me to no end feel that it needs to improve upon nature hmm. if if god or the creator of the universe, already made corn perfect. It has everything in it, you know, to sustain societies for centuries. But Monsanto feels the need to put poison in it so that when bugs eat it, their little stummies get eaten out. And then, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but every other ad on TV is a tummy medication. Oh, you got an upset tummy? Take all these pills. You got the But we don't look at the food source. And so we're poisoning ourselves, and we're paying them for it. And for me, Monsanto is an enemy of the state, so why don't we say something? I really don't understand our science silence. Mm. It's like we've made the A-bomb of nutrition, and we're dying. I have stage 4 cancer right now. I'm sorry. And... The The medication that my doctor gave me is called Tamifloxin, and it actually causes uterine cancer. So they're trying to kill my breast cancer and give me uterine cancer. I'll be carved up like a Christmas turkey by the time science is done with me. Mm. And that bothers me, mm. because there is no respect for the human body. It's like we're trying to bludgeon it with chemo, bludgeon it with Oreo cookies, bludgeon it with I don't know, chemicals that just destroy us in the end. That's my question. Why does science need to improve upon nature and destroy us in the process?
0: Okay, good question. I'll start with GMOs because you threw a lot there. And uh, hopefully I can remember the whole question. So GMOs are a point of great political controversy. They're really politically divisive. So we did some peer review studies on on GMO food, right? And we found that there's not um, any health consequence to genetically modified food. But we recently found another study that GMO foods aren't any more shippable, any more nutritious, any more resistant to pesticide. (laughs) So we've done all this effort and it hasn't hurt the food, but it has not helped the food. We've spent a ton of money, not just in Monsanto, but other organizations, working with this theory, could we use less pesticide if we uh, genetically select our food in order to use one species strategy of resistance in a different species, or find the genes that the most resistant corn has and put it together, And it hasn't worked. So genetically modifying food in a laboratory has been nowhere near as effective as genetically modifying food through agriculture. And this is a big point. Natural corn isn't all that edible. Natural bananas are very small and full of seeds. So for as long as humans have had agriculture, We have been intentionally pollinating different plants with no knowledge of DNA, but manipulating nature and creating foods that are easier for us to eat, easier for us to grow, and increase our food supply. When we started doing that, we had a global boom in population. And then we had the industrial age. And we took our ancient farming techniques And we executed them with mechanized equipment that allowed food on a scale never seen before in the history of our species. In the process, we started to burn primarily plankton that has been underground for hundreds of millions of years. And in doing so, revert the atmosphere back to a more ancient ratio of carbon dioxide to other uh, molecules Which is to use a technical term bad right 440 parts per million co2 in the atmosphere is something that has never happened as long as there have been humans on the planet Here's the problem So people say well well, we've just got to go back to local farming It's an incredibly privileged notion If we go back to local farming, most of the human population stars to death. If we go back to, you want a real paleo diet, a pre-agriculture diet? Go eat weeds. None of the fruits and vegetables in your grocery store existed because every single one has been modified by humanity through agriculture for over 50,000 years. This This is a big deal. So this goes back to the question about what does religion have to offer science. I don't think most scientists would would, uh, be pro-fracking or oil pipelining. Now some scientists are literally petroleum scientists or geological scientists and so they make their living. But in the academy, there is great concern about how scientific knowledge is applied through engineering. And in terms of what scientific uh, strategies we approach, there are um, genuine concerns you can place with genetically modified organisms. Now I tend to be more concerned about uh, a homogeneous agriculture. where you have very little gene diversity on, among crops, and if a bug learns to make one type of corn sick, and that's all you've got, you don't have any more corn. You get a corn plague, basically, and corn is so intrinsic to how we eat, and if you, you don't have time to raise other crops to offset it, you, people literally starve. Um, so I think this, this, the, the important thing is science is not moral or immoral. Science is amoral. And the decisions we make with our actions influence how science unfolds holds. And we constantly make decisions that reinforce bad behaviors at the institutional level in the sciences. Every person who buys an eight-cylinder engine when they need a four reinforces bad decisions. Every person who buys way more beef than they should be eating, not only does themselves a health disservice, but encourages not only carbon use, but excess use of antibiotics, which may ultimately be (laughs) a, a cause for a big population crash for us. We don't have a lot of new antibiotics in the queue to replace what we've got. So we've had a technological arms race that I agree with you in a lot of ways, has gone off the rails, so how do we say enough is enough? I think we're so frustrated with corporations and the political apparatus that we feel disempowered. And we go to social media to vent, which I think we should, anyone who says social media doesn't influence the formation of human belief or policy decisions is either intentionally lying or simply wrong. But we can't stop with hashtags and Facebook posts. We've got to write letters to congressmen. We've got to organize intentional economic boycotts. And I think sometimes, I think today, maybe three times a week, we've got to take our fight to the streets and raise public awareness and let our public officials know that non-action on climate change, that non-action on Antibiotic research that continued unethical actions on animal research are as vital to our species as other issues we care dearly about. That part of the march for racial justice and gender justice and social justice also includes a pro-human application of the sciences technology, engineering, and industry. Even, even you know, cancer treatments. They, they're brutal. They're primitive. And um, one thing, modern medicine. Modern medicine is great at measuring how well something works. But its reductive approach to the human body has made its search for statistical validity, which it has, lose its ability to provide holistic comfort to a patient. I was ill recently and um, desperate for relief. And I went to a holistic healing center and for all of the methodological objections I had to their prognosis and treatment, the way they asked about my entire life, spent a long time with a patient, viewed me as an individual person and not as a number on a chart and points of data played a role in my recovery. So Western medicine needs to learn that there's a reason so many people are turning to alternative health therapies, and that's they're tired of being treated as an assemblage of organs. I don't want to make the answer too long. I'm going to go one more part. Cancer is complicated. It's, it's um Cancer is a a collection of related disorders, and there are many. Um, What all cancers share in common is uh, genetic damage. And so when you get a cut, your cells get destroyed, and that sends a chemical signal there's a problem. And so your cells have little switches in your DNA that say it's time to reproduce very quickly. And in most cells, there are four of those. And then there's a fifth gene that is a break that says don't reproduce quickly. It's designed to keep your body from making cells that grow too fast. And it's, if you think about it, it's incredible. When you get a cut, starting at the bottom of the cut, new cells grow very rapidly and fill the cut or the wound. And then when they reach the surface, what do they do? They all stop again. And they reproduce at a normal speed. And in cancer, at least one of the genes to, say, grow gets switched on permanently, which exposure to ionizing radiation like the sun or x-rays can cause. um, And the gene that says don't grow gets switched on. And when that happens, you have a cancer cell. Now, your immune system is always watching out for rogue agents. So it can get a few of them. If you hit a critical mass in a part of your body and those cancer cells outrun your T-cells, you now have a tumor, you have cancer. The problem is, the, probably the ideal cancer therapy is a genetic therapy that puts those genes back where they are, but there's thousands of different types of cancer that involve different genetic components, and in different people, these genes may be placed in different parts of the DNA sequence. So you almost have to create a gene therapy specific to each type of cancer that can be customized to each person. So our approach instead is to use poisons that target fast-growing cells. This is why chemotherapy causes so much stomach trouble because the cells of your colon and stomach lining reproduce very quickly, and so they're almost universally attacked by chemotherapy as much as tumors are, and some chemotherapy regimens also cause genetic damage, increasing the propensity of cancer, especially in people who are genetically prone to it. So this is a, it's a a brutal means of treating. The problems we don't know, the the other thing we do, we blast it with radiation, which has its own set of problems because other tissues are gonna get bombarded by design, by ionizing radiation, Increasing their risk of developing cancers. So I think in that case, and I go deeply into my opinion here, I just gave you a lot of very verifiable scientific fact. Now I'm going to go into my opinion. I think we need to be more honest with people about the pain and suffering cancer treatments will cause. I think um, every oncologist should be matched with a therapist and a grief counselor. And I think cancer uniquely embodies the problem with Western medicine. We try to treat a tumor without treating the person and the resulting trauma from that sickness. And it makes people feel attacked and abandoned. And that is, that is not the right way to do science. And we're capable of better. And the only way it happens is if we demand it because here's the ultimate point. Like everyone else, scientists are trying to make it to Friday. Like everyone else, scientists are trying to make it to Friday. They have a busy workload. They've got their job. They're trying to do it. They're not thinking about larger issues. None of us spend all our time thinking about larger order issues. We think about this thing that's our task. We try to do it as well as we can and be nice to other people. And sometimes the only way to create change in the world is to be a pain in the ass. And uh, that's new information to me, but I've grown increasingly aware of it. So I want you to know, I value you, that we need you, that we're happy you're here. And if, if your doctor is not doing a good job of making you feel loved and known, um, my wish for you is that there are people in your life who pick up that slack. Um, and I bet there's some people in this room who would be happy to do so. So thank you for coming. <laughs> you,
5: Hi, Science Mike. Um, m- I'm hoping that my question isn't t- too personal and that um, people <laughs> in the room can benefit from the answer. Okay. Um,
0: just be careful what you ask me, because I will answer literally any question.
5: Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> um, I grew up uh, in a fundamental uh, Christian home. Um, I actually went around to lots of different churches. My mother toured around, sort of, in a uh, in a musical trio. So I was in the car at the front pew, you know, with my mom singing up there all the time. So. I am very familiar with evangelical Christian environment. Mm. Um, My husband and I got married very young. Uh, I was 21, and he was 20. And um, that was just a year ago, so. (laughs) Um, Congratulations. (laughs) um, But little did I know that my husband was going to bring me along a journey that I would have never expected after we got married, (laughs) which was this journey of sort of, but I'm very grateful because I would have never gone down it without him. Uh, This journey of deconstruction and questioning of what we believed because we never did and um, it's been beautiful, but it's been hard. (laughs) Um, And uh, I run a little bit behind him because Mm -hmm. he's very progressive and he's always, you know, going at it and all, his whole life, you know, revolves around this. Um, whereas I have a, I have a job. I have a full-time nine-to-five job, um, and my life does not revolve around just being able to think about my existence and you know <laughs> my faith and what it means. So um, I guess my question is: I keep coming to this 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 point of of sort of anger and confusion where I'm willing to accept um, justifying things and proving things with facts and science. I am very aware of the inconsistencies that I was uh, kind of that were shoved (laughs) down my throat when I was a child. Um, I'm aware of those and I've rejected them and I always come to this point where I'm just angry at the fact that I don't know how to come to terms with um, being able to bring up all these facts and science and say, well, this is evidence-based. We can see this. This is why we believe this, and this is why this is not right in the Bible. And uh, But then say, well, I do have faith. I believe in Jesus, and I don't know, and like, I believe in God. But like, there is no fact or science that you can tell someone, I'm trying to, like, give you a good question, but, like, how do you come to terms with using facts and science to back everything except for (laughs) your faith in God?
0: (laughs) That landed well. Good job. Thank you. Okay. Um, My solution is simple. I commit to being a weirdo just an incredibly strange person that makes everyone uncomfortable (laughs) because around religious people I tend to talk about the value of things we can prove and demonstrate via a philosophy called empiricism, probably more accurately an epistemology called empiricism. And empiricism empiricism is the idea that you put a confidence in a belief that is in proportion to the evidence you have to support that belief. So you might have a belief that unicorns are the dominant life form on earth, right? That's a belief you could hold. But if you were to test that idea by walking outside and watching nature programs and counting the number of unicorns you see versus other animals, you might find the number of unicorns you're able to count relatively low, possibly near zero, and so you would look at that empirically and say, well, I believe this idea, but I don't have any evidence for it, and so I must lower my confidence in belief. I'm not saying it's impossible that unicorns are the dominant form of life on Earth. I'm saying it is extraordinarily unlikely. And this is important. Science does not prove or disprove things, ever. Math can prove or disprove things. You can get a proof in geometry or algebra. You don't get a proof in science. You get to raise or lower statistical confidence in a given hypothesis. That's all science does. And I tend to emphasize that around people of faith. Why? Because they tend to not think that way. But when I'm around skeptics and I know they accept empiricism, (laughs) I tend to talk about alternate brain states and I tend to talk about mysticism and why that matters to me. And I, I, I thought for a long time that's because I'm exceedingly clever and have insights no one else does. And uh, that was a joke. But it's also true. And um, <laughs> it turns out I'm actually just a nonconformist. Like I'm just really strongly wired to, for a peacemaker, politely and with a southern accent, challenge everything people hold dear. And... Um, But the marriage for me between empiricism and mysticism is actually one of necessity. So we could say you can't provide scientific evidence to support the idea that there is God, that God exists. And I firmly disagree with an important caveat. What do you mean by God? There are some people who are called pantheists, and pantheists believe that the universe itself is God. I have high confidence that the universe exists. Not absolute, but as high confidence as I have in pretty much anything that the universe exists. So if you say the universe is God, you can with scientific, statistical confidence make a claim that God exists. And this is the important point we miss in conversations On faith, everyone throws around the word God like candy, and everybody means something different by the word, right? So if your God is a sentient bundle of cotton candy that orbits Saturn, I cannot provide scientific statistical confidence in a belief in the cotton candy God Or indeed, in the flying spaghetti monster that atheists have made famous. So, when I am forced to theologically defend a position about God, I will be very specific about what I mean. I will say God is at least a set, excuse me, God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial model rooted in human brains. And uh, seminarians universally accept that definition. Um, Pastors love it, especially in the Baptist church. Um, That's a very limited view of God. Physics, Einstein's God, Spinoza's God, plus a particular way our brains process that experience. But the reason I have that justification for God is simply so I don't feel like a fool When I delight in God's presence. Because what I've discovered in the mystical tradition of Christianity, where God cannot be known through language or rhetoric or image, that God can only be known through love, my study of neuroscience validates the fact that there are things about God that simply cannot be known or discussed, but only felt and experienced. And those are the most beautiful things of all. Those are the things that sometimes I walk down the street and start to weep and make people on the sidewalk think, I'm pretty nutty. But it's not because, I mean I am nutty, but it's because in a moment I looked around and all I could see was reflections of God's love in everyone's faces, including the people who are flicking people off in traffic. And it's, including the people that are tweeting, and I'm just filled with this gratitude for it all. Logically, it's a messy hack. But neurologically, it more accurately describes the way that human beings view the world. It turns out we're not rational actors. It turns out that we evolved a rational capacity not to learn things about the world, but to make fancy language to convince other people our gut feeling was correct. Imagine that. That's the birth of rationalism. It's evolution. So I let empiricism do what it does well, test ideas, including my ideas about God. But when I reach the end of the road of what can be tested and measured, I've learned to let go and dwell within that that can only be loved. And it sounds crazy unless you've been there too. And I recognize those people because when I talk about sitting in God's presence, I remember I got to sit in a room and talk to Richard Rohr a few times. And one time we were talking about special moments of meditation. And I said, You get to a point when you just. And a tear rolled down his cheek, and a tear rolled down mine. You get to a point where you just. It's not a profound statement unless you have been there. The miracle to me is a God which in physics seems impersonal and distant. Every time in my life I've reached out, God has reached back.
4: Hey there. Hi. My name is Jen, and my husband and I like to listen to your liturgist podcast. Um, I've been a Christian my whole life, and as I get older, I'm becoming more spiritual. And I believe less and less in hell. And it's really interesting to talk about that, because if, if hell doesn't exist like I thought it did, mm-hmm. then what do we need Jesus to save us from? And do I have to believe in hell to be a Christian? And maybe your thoughts on how you've dealt with that.
0: Okay. Thank you. What a great question. Um, Hell's not in the Bible. Uh, (laughs) Hell is an interpretation of a set of unrelated ideas in the Scriptures. The Old Testament speaks primarily of Sheol, the place of the dead, which in that era's theology, they were basically annihilationists. Um, at different points in, in Jewish history, they either believe that people went to Sheol and then faded away, or some people went to Abraham's bosom, which was not like super specifically defined, or they went to Sheol and faded away. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus will speak of a place called Gehana. Uh, I've been there. I've been to hell. It's really nice this time of year. Uh, Gahan is a specific spot outside of Jerusalem where they threw away the trash, and they would light the trash on fire, and worms would eat it, and lepers and the poor would pick through the trash in a place where the fire always burned and the worm never died. And as they picked through the trash, there was what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when Jesus would say to be apart from God is to go to Gehana in a modern context, it would say, to be apart from God is to wander around in a trash dump. Now, that's, there's, other, there's other support for hell, right? Jesus spoke of a rich man who ignored the needs of the poor and then was sent to a place where he would do anything for a drop of water on his tongue. And Jesus spoke of a faith like a mustard seed. And Jesus spoke that the kingdom of heaven was like a little bit of yeast. Why is that parable of Jesus the literal one? Now later, we do see ideas that maybe more strongly resemble we think about when we talk about hell with a guy named Paul. Paul was a Roman who existed in Hellenized thought, and Hellenic philosophy had a hell. So I think you can make a pretty good reasonable inference that hell is an idea imported into Christianity by Hellenized people, and that it actually is the first major shift, tectonic shift, away from the primarily Jewish-centered teachings of Christ and towards a Hellenized faith. So do you, can you be a Christian and not believe in hell? It depends on who you ask. Um, I would say, of course you don't have to believe in hell. But other people would say that's heresy. Here's an important caveat. I want you to find a Christian somewhere in the world, who is not a heretic to some other Christian. (laughs) Give it a shot. So you go to the Roman Catholic Church, right? Well, the Reformed would say they're in heresy, right? Even though they would say, what are you talking about? You're in rebellion to Rome. And the Greek Orthodox are saying, you're all crazy offshoots of the original movement. We who invented logic, are the ones who mutually excommunicated Rome because they tried to put logic in terms of the divine, which we considered heresy, right? Which, by the way, we have the oldest churches in the Holy City, and we would claim we were there before AD 72 when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. Find a Christian who is not some other Christian's heretic. So, what, what is, where does that leave us? Well, first of all, the word heresy's kind of gotten diluted to the point of meaninglessness. But a particular religious tradition, American evangelicalism, has done a pretty good job since about 1946 of pre- presenting itself as the one true Orthodox form of Christianity and being an accurate representation of first century Christianity. And historically, that's just a very weak claim. Who's a Christian? Teacher? What are the greatest commandments in all of Scripture? Well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your strength, your mind, and your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But who is my neighbor? He tells a story of the good Samaritan. And we hear that story. And we think the protagonist is the Good Samaritan. There is not a Jew who would have been alive at that time in history who would have identified with one of those Samaritans. The person lying on the side of the road was assumed by the listener to be Jewish. And the people who passed by were the most respected and elite members of Jewish society who refused to help one of their own because he was unclean. And so it took The good Muslim, the good atheist, the good lesbian, the taboo, hated member of culture to come show what it meant to be a follower of Christ. When are you a Christian? When you are a good neighbor who follows Jesus. Done. And anyone who spends most of their energy trying to decide who is in or out has missed the point of those stories. This is not a faith about building fences. This is a faith about knocking them down. The first movement in the church was a fight about whether Gentiles were allowed or not. And we know how that goes. Church history has been a move towards inclusivity. Church history has been about fulfilling the Great Commission, which is not an indoctrination of a certain set of values. The most beautiful thing in all of Christian theology to me is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was the ori- part of the original identity of god the part of the trinity that invited all of creation into reconciliation with the divine which means anything that creates peace in the world is a christ energy jesus incarnated the christ as an agent of peace and so do you every time you create peace in the world anything that goes against peace and reconciliation would then be anti-christ to be a Christian, create peace in the world. How do you do that? The parable is clear. You treat the wounds of the wounded. And you take someone who has been hurt and lacks the resources to protect themselves, and you take them to the nearest end, and you say, take care of everything they need, and I will be back to pay the bill. Who is a good neighbor? A good neighbor says, Black Lives Matter. A good neighbor says, I stand with my gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, intersex, and queer neighbors. A good neighbor says, I will not rest until no one is left on the side of this road. And a bad neighbor walks by because they are too righteous. And none of that has anything to do to do with hell as an eternal place of torment. People in America today know exactly what hell is like and we're the ones who are leaving them there.
1: So, um, your podcast from Kansas City recently came out and there was uh, a young woman who asked a question about female participation. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially, um, part, part of your answer involved men making way and making a space mm-hmm. for women. My question, and I realize it's fairly more culturally relevant right now, um, is how do I balance my desire to make space for women for other races, for LGBT people with my my own personal desires and my own perceived
0: needs be more specific what do you mean
1: so an example would be my desire to ask a question okay um, great yeah or or as i alluded to possibly the the needs or the perceived needs or or that of half of this country
0: yeah okay Great, thank you. Economies aren't zero-sum games. We have a a belief that in order for someone to win, someone else has to lose. It's kind of intrinsic to the species. It's just not true. Just not true. Funny thing about economies, the data seems to indicate the more people who win, the bigger people win. (laughs) We've got great data points that show that... uh, in cultures with the highest rates of economic disparity, rich people get sick more often. We're not an, in, there's, no, there's no individuals, we're a social species. To, to say, I gotta get mine, and they can't get theirs, is for a body to say, I need luscious hair, so I'll cut off my toes. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it creates a malformed unhealthy society so when I say creating space I don't mean men should not have jobs and We're kind of getting to that point if you look at college graduation rates um, in some ways men might be accidentally seating the floor too aggressively and our mothers sisters and spouses might have to provide housing and shelter for us um, What I'm saying is for those of us that are in social positions where the wind is at our back, we have to use that advantage to get rid of our advantage. That's what I'm saying. There is no way if I was a woman of color, my podcast would be as popular my book deal comes come as easily or as quickly because without ten times the work. So, as a white, straight male, when I said, I want to talk about progressive social issues, the world went, yeah! You've even got a deep radio voice, right? Like, this is incredible. We're all going to download it. So... Um, When my publisher asked me who were authors they should be looking out for, um, I'll admit there were no straight white men on my list. And I'm sorry straight white men, you can go get a publishing deal pretty easily with no help. Just go walk into a bookstore, go look at the spirituality section, right? it's really easy to be a straight, hetero guy and get a publishing deal. And frankly, our perspective is so well known, it's not that interesting. Uh, I have found that the authors I'm reading today that just light me up, they're a diverse set. Um, I have a podcast that co-host called The Liturgist Podcast. And we just made a decision We weren't going to air episodes that only featured white men anymore. Ever. What happened when we embodied not tokenism? I'm not talking about tokens. Take your tokens to the arcade, right? Like, I'm talking about when you bring the fullness of humanity to address an issue, you get a better perspective. I'm doing this because it makes the product better. So in season three... And it took a long time. It took a long after the decision. It took months and months and months of serious effort to change the way we tool the show. It wasn't just like a, here we go, but we embodied diversity. And guess what happened? Our downloads went like this. You know why? Because media diversity is shitty, and people are people are hungry. People desire more voices. People are tired of the same. Milk toast white bread media. It's not interesting. So, I'm not saying white men need to leave. I'm saying we need to pull other people up on the stage with us. And once they're there, since we've had the mic for like 200,000 years, maybe we could stand in the back of the acceptance speech and do like this. maybe for the first time in modern history we could play in support roles on purpose Um, and that does not mean you can't be ambitious it doesn't mean you can't be successful i firmly believe you will actually be more successful in what you do when you Partner with all of humanity to do it. So I think any perceived conflict is just perceived, because you think it's a zero-sum game. Wait, if I get a call for a speaking event and I recommend someone else, I'll starve. No, there's there's a lot of speaking events, (laughs) and you might actually find that when you have a reputation of giving incredibly solid speaker recommendations. From voices they haven't heard before, you become more popular and the phone rings more often and you make more. It is a self feeding virtuous cycle. It's beautiful. I speak from experience and I've just started. I've just started. We always have to remember that life is not a zero sum game and when we help others win, we win. Hey, uh, so and previously you brought up um, Paul bringing
1: in Hellenistic ideas into the Bible and such. So I was just wondering uh, if you think that certain parts of the Bible aren't God-inspired. Um, maybe, in other words, just made up or, you know, thought up by men. And, um, and so with that idea, do you just kind of sum it all up and say that the golden rule is, is the rule?
0: No. So, great question, though. Um, The whole Bible was inspired by God, including the parts about going into the promised land and killing all the enemy soldiers and the women and the children and burning the livestock. That was inspired by God. In Revelation, with a multi-headed beast rising from the ocean and a king composed of You know, different materials and all these weird, that was inspired by God. When it says, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. That was inspired by God. The whole Bible was inspired by God. I once wrote a song called Song for Jenny. I'm real clever. Because the song was a song, and it was written for a person named Jenny, who ultimately became my wife because I wrote that song to propose to her if you listen to the lyrics of song for Jenny you would learn so much about Jenny because I love her so much and she means so much to me you would learn about Jenny about me describing my relationship with Jenny my experience with Jenny because the whole song was inspired by Jenny but Jenny didn't write song for Jenny. That would be some weird narcissism. <clears throat> right? Like if you heard that song you're like that's beautiful. And at the end you heard Jenny wrote it. You would never like the song or Jenny again. So the thing I love about the Bible is that it was all inspired by God. And how much people love God. And sometimes are really pissed at God. You ever read Lamentations? That's not a real pro-God book. You ever read my favorite book, Ecclesiastes? Everything is meaningless. For the whole book. I'm not over... He would just name things, the teacher, Colette, and then talk about how meaningless they are. And then in the end, of course, he redeems it by saying but the teacher loved and followed God without answering any of the questions. That's so real. That's so, where I am in my life, reading Ecclesiastes, every time lifts me up because in the Bible is somebody that doesn't get it and considered to be one of the great wisdom writers. But that means we can't read the Bible simplistically. Ever. Ever. There was not a word in the Bible in which the author intended as his audience Americans living in 2016. There is not one word in the Bible intended for Americans in 2016. There's not one word in the Bible intended for Americans by the author. The Bible is a library of books written by men about God, assembled by the church. And that makes it more valuable to me and not less because it is through the humanity of the Bible that we encounter its divinity. It's because the Bible is a love letter and kind of a Dear John letter to God. And because of that, because we have hundreds of authors Over a period of 1,500 years, recording an ongoing discovery of who God is in different circumstances, wherever you are in your walk of faith, somebody in the Bible is there too. If you think God is as near as the next breath and loves you dearly, Proverbs will rock out with you. If you think this is all probably bullshit, Lamentations has your back. If you find God so mysterious and distant, Moses gets it. He stood before a bush that was on fire that talked about existentialism (laughs) and then said, take your shoes off. (laughs) If sometimes you feel like you need a God you can talk to, the Gospels are with you. They need an incarnation for God to make sense. But in no case... Do we get to take a sentence out of the Bible and treat it like a constitution? Because constitutions didn't exist when the Bible was written. And the authors of the Old Testament meant for the text to be wrestled with. That was part of the process. Wrestled with together, by the way, they discussed the Bible systematically in groups, the Hebrew Bible. and Paul's epistles, Let's be honest, a lot of times I think Paul's nuts. But I read it alone, and I forget that these epistles were meant to be read aloud to people gathered together as a church and not meant to be perceived through an individualist lens. So to unlock the power of the Bible, we have to do, like, biblical scholarship. And that's hard. It makes the Bible a more challenging book than... Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, right? Um, And that's a challenging book. Have you seen the footnotes? It has more footnotes than the Bible. But at least you can read it with a Western context, and that's how it was meant to be read. But Enlightenment Westernist philosophy didn't exist when any of the Bible was written or assembled. So what is, and the Bible is inspired by God, everything. What of the Bible is meant to be ascribed literally and legalistically through a modern context? None of it. The Bible's a tough book, and it's not for babies.
5: Hey,
1: um, so my question is about the way millennials are perceived, um, specifically, usually by older generations. Um, I was on Facebook like yesterday. And one of my parents' friends had posted a picture from uh, like after the election results and it was of this like these young girls like at a Hillary rally that were crying. And the Mm -hmm. caption was uh, the everybody gets a trophy generation summed up into one picture. And I feel like I hear this a lot, um, older generations complaining about us saying that we're lazy or... I don't know. So what's with that divide? Um, Is there any legitimacy to what they're saying? Are we lazy?
0: (laughs) Thanks for setting me up with that one. Uh, (laughs) Did me real solid. So the trophy that got all these, the trophy that got, the generation that got all these trophies, who gave those trophies? Who's complaining using that language? Who gave all those millennials trophies? I mean other than me, but that was just my kid, and my kid's a special snowflake, but the rest of those millennials just got to get right. Oh, man. I am so over millennial bashing. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I guess if you hate a generation that, like, accepts friends of different ethnic identities without judgment. I guess that's kind of a bummer. If you have a generation that is capable of both being conservative theologically and accommodating to people of different gender and sexual identities, I guess that's a real bummer. Um, If you have people who are lazy because they can only find service industry works, because the boomers blew their retirement on a stock crash and an insufficient savings, so they worked longer than anyone else, so Generation X couldn't advance, so there's just no jobs, but they have crippling college debt because they were told they needed a degree, so they feel economically disempowered because they have low income and high student income debt, and that's lazy and not systemic. I guess you can make an argument. I might be showing my bias here. I'm in Generation X. <laughs> I'm in Generation X, and we realized really early that in some ways, and let me say hashtag not all boomers right now, but um, the baby boomer generation said, we're going to change the world in the 60s, and then said, you know what, actually a stock portfolio would be quite nice, and just started to eat the earth like cake. There's no perfect generation. The Greatest Generation executed one of the biggest cons in the history of white supremacy with the GI Bill after World War II. They created white wealth and the income disparity we deal with today. They could have solved it then or made huge progress just by giving the same benefits to black GIs, and they didn't. But they were at least civically minded. The boomers just decided to eat the world. Who built that national debt? And then they want to call millennials lazy or crybabies. I'm sorry if the suffering of people differently than me moves me deeply. Oh, so sorry. I guess I'll grow up and stop Caring for other people. Contrary to the banter, millennials fill me with hope. Because at some point, the boomers will make like Moses. And they won't make it into the promised land. They just die off first. And honestly, us Generation Xers, We're so cynical, we refuse to act. So we believe like millennials, but we don't think anything can happen. I have great sympathy for your generation and the one that follows you. You've been handed a world that is nearly mortally wounded. So here's here's my advice, my younger friends. What we think about you doesn't matter. The world is yours. Time will do what time does. Death will be the change agent that it is, and then you will face the same task every preceding generation has been given, to make a world. And admittedly, most generations have been extraordinarily thoughtless about this activity, but you are armed with a new set of scientific insight you are armed with a global communications grid that lets you experience more different perspectives than any other generation in human history. By the way, you're welcome. Generation X built that. So uh, <laughs> that's our one mark on human history, the internet. Um, the world is yours to make. If you want to give everybody a trophy, give everybody a trophy. Um, But don't lose this fire you feel right now. Don't lose this sense that something in the world is wrong, that there is a sickness that needs to be healed. Because I think millennials, more than any other generation in American history, have the potential to actually be salt and light, to actually be a preserving force in the world. Now, maybe my idealism is misplaced. Perhaps not only the American experiment is drawing to a close, but evolution's experiment with homo sapiens. (laughs) Uh, I don't rule that out as a possibility. But I choose, instead of cynicism about future generations, hope. I choose, instead of hoarding, to invest in you because by the numbers you're great, by the numbers. You don't treat each other the way we've treated each other. By the numbers, you talk about sex more but have it less often. By the numbers, you have lower rates of teen pregnancy, drug use, alcohol use. I mean, you smoke a lot of weed. (laughs) But don't let them lie, the boomers do too. And the generation after you, statistically, is even better. And the thing that gives me hope about millennials is the only time, historically speaking, humans are capable of positive change is when it looks like we've reached the end. And that changes the way our brains work. What I'm hoping is you're inheriting a world just bad enough to inspire you, but still good enough to be saved.
4: So... um... Yeah, I have not read your book, so... Most people haven't. I I don't know if you have covered maybe anything that relates to my question. And um, it's not as intellectual as some of the other questions. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to know, how do you think, would an official announcement or a confirmation of alien life forms impact Christianity? Um, in your opinion?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I started Ask Science Mike because people on Twitter told me to. That's true. I didn't actually come up with a show. But once I started this podcast, my goal was that like Christians who grew up without a science background, I could just help them catch up. That was the goal for Ask Science Mike. And it became like kind of a combination between like Dear Abby Like, Science Mike, what do I do? And like, hey, Science Mike, here are unanswered questions in theology, philosophy, and the sciences. So what's up? Can you answer it? And that's tough. That is exactly the kind of question I just wait for. What would a discovery of extraterrestrial life do to Christianity? What would it do to humanity? I don't think there could be bigger or more significant news i really don't because there is not a person alive who hasn't spent a significant amount of their life trying to figure out how did this happen <laughs> and by this i mean everything where did we come from are we here on purpose are we an accident you know what I mean? Like, this search for belonging in our origins is universal. And the biggest problem we have is a scarcity of data. We got all these theories religious, scientific, philosophic, ethical, plenty of different plausible ideas. We have no way to know which ones are right and which ones are wrong. So, if we found one microbe on Mars, living or dead, it would be the greatest scientific discovery in human history. Here's why. We found it on Mars. Mars is close. Life is probably really common. Is that microbe based on DNA? based on DNA, is that DNA similar to DNA of life on Earth or not, and by what percentage? If it is in any way similar, are we all Martians? And now life is rare again. But if it's DNA-based and dissimilar, is DNA a universal framework for how life develops? That would tell us a lot about the conditions under which life develops. That's a microbe on Mars. That's not intelligent life. If we find a microbe 200,000 years from now when a faster than life probe enters a star system very far away and we find one microbe, that tells us life is probably a lot less common. But if we hit the big one, if we hit a signal from another intelligent species in the universe, then we are not alone. What do they know about their origins? We can compare notes. How did they come to be? And I'll be honest. If we encounter a civilization in some other corner of the galaxy that has one word in common with us, and it's Jesus, I'm going to freak out. (laughs) I will probably go back to the Baptist church and be like, hey, everybody, 6,000 years for reals, right? That's the level of impact a discovery like that could have. If they're like, no man passes to the Father except by me, I'll be like, what? So what? Impact can extraterrestrial life have on our theology? Absolute. For, for for my evangelical friends, what if we meet aliens that don't sin? Are they heavenly beings? No, they die. They just don't sin. They don't commit moral transgressions of any kind. They don't need a savior. Well, I guess we can we can work that out. What if we meet extraterrestrials that do sin? Do they need Jesus? Do we proselytize them? One of my favorite books is called The Book of Strange New Things. It's a book about a missionary who's sent to an alien planet to spread the word of God to aliens. It's incredible. Um, It's science fiction, obviously. Uh, (laughs) But it turns out these aliens are the only ones that can grow food on their planet, and we've destroyed ours, so we're hoping to settle there. And the only way they'll let people act on their planet and give them food is if we give them a missionary because the first missionary who went there they got really excited about Jesus and all professed faith and became Christians and then the priest went missing so they needed another missionary so a cost of billions of dollars they send a second missionary to the planet how advanced another civilization is compared to us will influence that if we meet a more advanced civilization I think it's probably bad news for most religious faiths and most theologies. Because a lot of the questions we find pressing and existential, they will teach their toddlers. Uh, It's possible another civilization if, like if you can travel faster than light, you can channel enough energy to just make planets go, right? So in the event that they, we wouldn't have a war of the (laughs) worlds. You know what I mean? Any more than like an ant colony wages war on a city. It, it, it would change everything. It would change everything. For my faith, wouldn't change it at all. wouldn't change it at all. It would be at the heart of my faith, the mystery we call God so delights in creation that God can't stop creating. Sounds about right to me. A God that invites the created to partner and the ongoing process of creation has done that multiple times in the universe. Yeah, that's a big validation. But I'm a weird Christian. I don't make, like, exclusive theological claims or uh, <laughs> really any fact claims at all. Um, I would just be fascinated. But I, I have absolutely no hesitation that if you think... Um, Trump is big nose. The amount of social upheaval following first contact will dwarf anything that's happened in the history of this species. So, you've done it. You've listened to another episode of Ask Science Mike, and I'm so glad you did. I want to thank Greg Nordine for his tireless work making this show sound like something professional instead of the absolute horror I commit to tape. Uh, I want to thank Andrew Golucky for his work in pre-production and coordinating our Together groups. If you're in a city in America and you think it might just be you, we build groups on Facebook so people can find each other. Go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Together logo to learn more. I want to thank my patrons on Patreon who make this show financially possible, and when the show's not live, get to pick the questions. We'll be back to that kind of schedule later in the year. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.